We are a resource for learners, including every member of the Livestrong Cancer Institute's on-track educational pipeline from middle school to residency. We are a growing collection of interviews, talks, and experiences that uncover the myths and the uncertainties of cancer and careers in cancer in order to empower and inspire generations of thinkers and leaders. This is Cancer Uncovered, an education and empowerment podcast by the Livestrong Cancer Institutes. Welcome back to Cancer Uncovered. My name is Kristen Wynn, and I am part of the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, an emerging academic cancer center at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. This month, we're uncovering cancer and nutrition with two in-house experts, Alejandra de Angulo, PhD and research fellow with the Livestrong Cancer Institute's Developmental Therapeutics Lab, and Crystal Zuniga, registered dietitian for the Livestrong Cancer Institute's clinic with UT Health Austin. The study of nutrition is layered and fascinating, especially when you think of it in terms of preventing cancer or being used as an incredible tool to help a person with cancer to support their physical and mental health through their treatment. Unfortunately, Access to professional dietetic support for cancer patients is severely lacking. According to a study by the National Cancer Institute, up to 80% of cancer patients suffer from malnutrition at some point during their treatment, depending on tumor type and stage of cancer. And malnutrition is responsible for one in five cancer-related deaths. And yet, Medicaid and most insurance companies currently don't cover nutrition for cancer patients. The Association of Community Cancer Centers, in a study conducted in February of 2020, shows that in outpatient cancer centers, places people go to get cancer treated other than a hospital, the ratio of registered dietitians to cancer patients is 1 to 2,300. We'll also take some time in this episode to address the lack of diversity in the field of nutrition and dietetics itself. What are the barriers to becoming a registered dietitian? In this episode, we'll also talk with Crystal about her role as the registered dietitian at the Livestrong Cancer Institute's clinic. But first, let's break it down. What is nutrition besides eating food? Nutrition is so much more than food. Nutrition is a science, and nutrition is a science that involves the study of the nutrients in food how the body digests, absorbs, uses, excretes those compounds in food, and then the relationship between diet, health, and disease. So it's really the study of what not only is in food, but what our body does with those compounds and how the pattern of the food that we eat impacts our overall health and risk of disease. That's Crystal Zuniga, registered dietitian at LCI. Nutrition is important in that the nutrients in the food we eat becomes and affects every single cell in the body. So we literally are what we eat. We cannot function without the energy and the nutrients that food provides. What we get from our diet is needed for growth, maintenance, repair, and other vital functions in the body. So when there is a change in function of the body, like in chronic disease, such as cancer, 
nutrient needs change because the demands and the functions within the body have changed. So we need to understand how to make dietary adjustments based on what the needs of the body are during cancer. If you think about it throughout our life, I don't know, we have something around, I think one of my textbook once said like around 100,000 meals throughout our life. That means that Every day you have to make food choices, right? And those choices, maybe not one, but over time can potentially influence your health to better and worse. So if you're very, very careless about those food choices over time, that can lead to chronic diseases. And one of them that now we have enough research is cancer. So for example, it's well known that nutrition is quite important for cancer prevention. So there's research that suggests that having lower consumption of processed foods and red meat and alcohol can actually significantly reduce your risk. So that's one of the reasons why it's important. That was Alejandra de Angulo who is currently a research fellow with LCI, but is also an adjunct professor at UT Austin, who teaches an online graduate course in cancer and nutrition. Now, more on prevention with Crystal. For the prevention of cancer, yes, there is quite a bit of research in this area. Several lifestyle factors, including diet, are associated with a reduced risk of developing cancer. It actually has been estimated that up to 50% of cancers could be preventable through lifestyles and avoiding exposure to environmental carcinogens and some long-term infections. So there are lifestyle factors that are associated with the risk of developing cancer. Cancer is caused by DNA damage in the cells from carcinogens in our environment or viruses, inflammation, or sometimes just mistakes the cell makes during normal cell division. Our diet can impact our cancer risk through some of those mechanisms on how cancer develops. So several ways. One of them is that food from our diet can actually be a vector for exposure to carcinogens. For example, heterocyclic amines, which are formed from grilling meats, this is a known carcinogen. We've also learned how nitrates and nitrites that are in processed meats are also listed as a probable carcinogen. So food itself could be a way of introducing carcinogens that could damage DNA. But also nutrients in our food could help enhance some of our mechanisms in place in the body already to defend against DNA damage. For example, there are nutrients and other antioxidants that can come from food that support the body's ability to detoxify carcinogens that could damage DNA. So for example, they're involved in detox systems in the liver, or they can fight against free radicals that could damage DNA as well. Also, nutrients from food are absolutely required for the function of some of our DNA damage repair mechanisms. And then another area of uh, growing research is the role of obesity and how obesity can lead to chronic low-grade inflammation or alter hormone levels 
that could create an environment that is more conducive to cancer development. So that's broadly just a few examples of how nutrition not only impacts our exposure to things that could damage DNA, but it impacts the body's defense against stressors, and it also influences the environment in the body that can promote cancer development and growth. So we see the role of nutrition not only in prevention, but also in the development um, of cancer as well. In my conversations with Crystal and Alejandra, we talked about the common misconceptions, the myths around nutrition, as well as cancer and nutrition. There are so many. I feel like it's a whack-a-mole in what myth I'm going to hear. Really, I think one of the biggest ones is that there is one anti-cancer diet. You know, there is really no one diet for anything. There is not one disease several hundred types of cancer. And even cancers that come from the same tissues can have different mutations or subtypes. So just like there isn't one treatment for all cancers, there is no single diet one patient should follow. And that's kind of in reference to there's a lot of attention about the keto diet or intermittent fasting in cancer. And there is some interesting stuff coming out there but we simply do not have enough human studies on their benefits, our role during cancer. And we don't change our diet recommendations based on one study or even a small handful of animal studies. So we really need more human trials to change our general recommendations about diet and cancer. So there is no one diet that someone should be following during cancer. And really recommend that patients focus on foundational needs of the body. You know, the body does not need turmeric, as one example, but it absolutely needs adequate calories, protein, fluids, and essential nutrients. So also not one anti-cancer diet. We do know that everyone should try to meet those foundational needs of energy, protein, nutrients, and fluid. So nutrition in cancer is not about rigid dietary restrictions and that diet should not be regarded as a chore for cancer, but rather a tool to help to support the individual under cancer treatment and that we can help use nutrition as a way to enhance quality of life and the nutritional status of a patient. So I think a common misconception is that it's either diet or cancer treatment when really we should be looking at how diet can support cancer treatment. And I think that's why a lot of people are confused too, because they may say in the news, they just pick up one study that said it was good. And then three months later, there's one that actually contradicts and people are so confused. That's why when we read those analyses that encompass all of them, sometimes we call it meta-analysis, it just all together is like, okay, this is enough to us to establish that, yes, eat your whole grains, eat your fruits and vegetables, and then maybe have more moderate consumption of processed meat, red meat. And I think people think about diet as a restrictive meal pattern and they think about the, oh, I'm on a diet. 
the word diet actually means what you eat. Doesn't mean a restrictive pattern or a restricted diet. And I think that's a big difference. So when you eat, if you think literally when people say I'm in a diet, they're saying I am in a eating pattern. <laughs> so Now that we're more aware of some of the myths surrounding cancer and nutrition, let's talk more about the role that nutrition plays in cancer care. Oncology nutrition is a very complex and complicated field. And cancer treatments are designed to kill cancer cells, but they can also damage healthy cells. And this can cause side effects leading to difficulty eating, such as nausea or vomiting, taste changes, lack of appetite, so many uh, nutrition impact symptoms. And then also surgeries can impact directly normal digestion or absorption of nutrients. So the treatments and surgeries can make it difficult to eat. There are also, during treatment, increased calorie and protein needs and nutrient needs for recovery of these healthy cells during and after treatment. So we have this problem of needing more nutrition, but having more challenges in eating so that's really where the role of the dietitian comes in to help patients eat well during treatment. Good nutrition can help patients maintain their body weight and prevent muscle mass loss, so prevent malnutrition, reduce side effects of treatment, prevent treatment delays or breaks, uh, reduce the risk of getting into a hospital, and impact treatment response. And really, I think an important role that we shouldn't forget is how it can help support the quality of life of the patient through good nutrition. So people with cancer often need to follow diets that look different from what they were eating before or what many people think of as healthy. So a healthy diet, we would be promoting fruits and vegetables, whole grains, limited animal products. But when a patient is having trouble during treatment, maintaining their strength, it's really a challenge to eat enough. And so a dietitian helps them navigate how can we get the most bang for your buck nutrition-wise and help them choose foods that are high in calories and nutrients with maybe low volume or not worsening some of their side effects they're already experiencing. So really helping our patients cope with common eating problems faced during treatment Another thing in the role of a dietitian is some patients may require nutrition through a feeding tube, either through their stomach or a part of their intestine, or some might even require getting nutrition through their veins. So dietitians help patients learn how to use some of these feeding tubes and manage writing the prescription for the nutrition order and monitoring how a patient is tolerating this very different form of nutrition. Also, depending on where an oncology dietitian works, if we could help prepare a patient for surgery. So some patients might need to lose weight or gain muscle before surgery to have better outcomes and reduce their risk during surgery. Also, after surgery, they may have changes in their ability to digest and absorb food. So a dietitian needs to help them navigate how they might need to change their diet based on what was removed or modified during a surgery. Monitor labs and nutrient deficiencies. We recommend supplementation when it is necessary. 
help modify diets based on what's going on with the patient. And really, we are working collaboratively with the providers to support the treatment plan. I might be making medication recommendations for symptom management or digestive enzymes to the provider so the provider can prescribe that. So diet is important during treatment but also after treatment. So cancer and recovery doesn't end when they disconnect from their final chemo. There are side effects that can continue after treatment. Some may find it hard to lose weight or some may find it hard to gain weight after treatment and get back some of that muscle loss. So still after treatment, helping them manage side effects, get back to a diet that could be good for their overall health. Really key in our role is that As I mentioned before, there is no one anti-cancer diet. We personalize nutrition care plans to the specific needs of each patient, which can change throughout their journey with cancer. And our goal is to help our patients build strength, combat fatigue, minimize symptoms, and help them navigate making informed food choices because eating can look so different during cancer than what they were doing before. Um, So what I really love about this role is that we are are helping, we are guiding. Um, This is very different. I think a lot of us eat and don't even pay attention to what we're doing. It's all normal. You eat what you want, when you want. And during treatment, that's not the same. And so I can help them navigate this to help reduce stress around food and their eating experiences. Education with the patient, with their care, providers, the family, and really helping support the patient through good nutrition. So you've heard the terms used to describe experts in this field as nutritionists and dietitians. One might think it's all the same, right? Tomato, tomato. Let's talk more about the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian. So uh, the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist, what does it take to be a nutritionist? is to simply call yourself a nutritionist. There really is no regulation on that term. And that is really dangerous and confusing for the public. Also terms like health coach or health and wellness coach, that's still not a dietitian. And that is a self-proclaimed title. A dietitian requires the training of nutrition in a formal setting. So a dietitian in our training requires a four-year degree from an accredited program at a university. There are standardized courses that we need to complete, including food science, biochemistry, organic chemistry, exercise physiology, anatomy, nutrition counseling, nutrient metabolism, community health even food policy and food service. So we're getting everything from understanding global policies to how food is grown, cooked, and then the science of how all of that happens, what goes on in the body. So a lot of science. I don't think many people understand how much uh, science training is in a dietitian's formal training. Then there's a required supervised internship can range anywhere from 900 to 1,200 hours of supervised clinical practice. And this is usually unpaid, and it can take anywhere from six months to a year to complete that internship. 
And also to know that not everyone who completes that undergrad degree actually gets matched to an internship. So it is very competitive, kind of thinking like medical school, not everyone who's pre-med gets into medical school, not everyone who does that four-year degree gets into an internship. And you have to complete that internship before you're eligible to take the exam to be a registered dietitian. And then continuing education is required. We have to complete 75 uh, continuing education credits every five years. So also some states require licensure, and that could also come with continuing education requirements or uh, some examination. In 2024, it's being proposed to require a master's degree to be able to sit, to be eligible to take that exam. So kind of in sum, it is four-year college degree, supervised, usually unpaid internship for that experience, and then taking an exam, and then required continuing education to maintain that title of a dietitian. So it would, be, it would have been much easier to just call myself a nutritionist, but the level of education is so different. Alejandra has an incredible career researching and teaching about dietetics and nutrition, and now cancer, specifically multiple myeloma, here at LCI. She brings a genuine passion for investigating the answers to tough questions. And yet, when we talked about her career path and trajectory, Alejandra was graciously open about the journey having a few bumps in the road. One of the reasons why I didn't finish or I didn't do my certification and didn't finish my, I didn't become a registered dietitian. So I took all the courses necessarily to become a registered dietitian. The only thing missing for me was the internship and the exam. In order to become a dietitian, it's actually very expensive. So you have to work as an intern for nine months and pay for it. So you're paying tuition and you're working nine months as an intern. And most of these internships, except like two, are on pay. And then after that, you have to take this exam that for a lot of students may be expensive because it costs like $200 or around that. It's very hard for you to work. I always worked, I always had like a side job as a student. Austin is very, very expensive. So I always support myself a little bit. I, I work as a receptionist. I worked in a restaurant, whatever I needed to be able to live in Austin. And when I thought about that internship, I was not going to be able to work. And then I had to pay tuition. Starting jobs as a dietitians don't pay that much. So you still have your student loans. So I think that's one of the problems there, the lack of access for everybody, I think, is this internship. And one of my professors was like, hey, just do your research, your PhD, and maybe while you're doing your PhD, you can do your internship. But this program was not really set up, so it never really worked for me. So I have everything, but I just haven't have done that internship just because it was just not didn't make sense for me. Like I never found a time, hey, I have enough money saved so I can not work for nine months and do this internship. We need more diversity in our field. 
Okay, patients and clients are becoming more diverse, but the demographic profile of dietitians has been essentially unchanged over the past decade or two. It does not resemble the community that we have to serve. The field is about 94% female and 85% white, not representing our population at all. And we need an ethnically and culturally diverse profession to better serve our community. Also, that's impacting our pipeline when we're adding another layer of a master's degree that they're going to have to pay for. So that's six years of education plus an unpaid internship. So that is creating barriers to enter into the profession. And programs have already noticed a drop in enrollment and a change in their applicants because of already, if someone says they want to be a dietitian, they see what they have to do, might not even begin that route. And they might look at maybe just becoming a nutritionist. And so then we're like creating a problem, worsening a problem we already have in our field. And we need to help open up opportunity for more diverse populations to pursue a degree in dietetics and become a dietitian. Yeah, we've got, we have a problem. So only like approximately 5% registered dietitians are Latina or Latino, and then around 2.5% are African-American and around 5% Asian. But that's not really how the country looks like. A lot of us, we look for a health practitioner that looks like us. So I think it's very important to diversify the field because we want to maybe go to a dietitian that understands our cultural background, that we look for that. And we also know that historically, people of color receive different kind of cares. So I think one of the ways that we can we can work to eliminate that disparity in access to dietitians and nutrient treatment is to have a more diverse field. There is disparity in, in access to dietitians, the access to healthy foods. If you are white and you come from a higher socioeconomical status, you're more likely to go to a dietitian. And we know that nutrition during cancer is it's very important. And some people have access, but not all insurance cover that. So not all centers like what we do have in the Dell Medical School have a dietitian. That's not something that everybody can access. So I think there's lack of diversity and lack of access. I will say those two things make it less likely to somebody be able to access, you know, nutrition advice that as we have learned, you know, with this conversation, it's, it's so important. In the very first episode of the podcast, we discussed the calm model of whole person care that the Livestrong Cancer Institute's clinic has implemented for its patients, so patients can receive wraparound care for the many facets of their dynamic lives in one place, from mental health to fertility considerations, pain management, and dietary needs, as well as receiving treatment and care from an oncologist. We would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode to hear more on the CALM model. Crystal is the registered dietitian at LCI, and we wanted to hear all about her role in this multifaceted team. 
Well, my typical day has changed now because of telehealth. But before, when I was in clinic, I was part of our room where all of the providers were, would be during clinic. So we could easily have conversations about patients and things like that. Now during telehealth, we've got, thankfully, Zoom has kept us really well connected with patients. But I am part of any of our huddles that we have when we talk about patients. I am there learning what is going on in their treatment plan learning if they are having some increased side effects so that I can connect with that patient and have an individual consult with them. Also, what I really love about our team here at LCI is how much we work collaboratively. We might have joint visits. I am in that visit, so they don't have to meet with me separately and answer the same questions. For example, with Emily McLeod, one of our advanced practice providers, we had a patient who was having lack of appetite. So we had a meeting to discuss if an appetite stimulant or a nausea medication would be helpful. And then my role was, how can we help you eat well when you are having these side effects? So we work in conjunction. It's not only medication. We could do medication and diet modifications. So we're working together literally in the same visit. So my appointments can look different depending on what's going on. But usually I try to meet with a patient before they start treatment to address some things like if they have already lost weight, we need to help them get some weight back on, figure out what's going on before they're going to be ready to start treatment. So in my role, I try to get in connected with the patient as soon as possible and then continue to monitor throughout treatment. The earlier, the better, the more collaboratively, the better and really get to do that here at LCI. I love that because they get to see how, what I am giving recommendations about, I get to hear what the provider is saying, and so we can get on the same page. And that it also displays to the patient when I'm in the room with that provider that nutrition is important. The provider thought it was important enough to bring a dietitian into the visit. So it really helps elevate the role of nutrition through our collaborative appointments. Please make sure to join us next week when we'll release the second part of this episode with a deeper look at Crystal and Alejandra's backgrounds, career paths, and their advice for those interested in the field of cancer and nutrition. If you have questions for the LCI or more cancer questions that we can uncover, please reach out and email us at LivestrongCancerInstitutes at delmed.utexas.edu. Please make sure institutes is plural. You can follow our chair and director, Dr. Gail Eckhart, on Twitter at S. Gail Eckhart. Eckhart is spelled E-C-K-H-A-R-D-T. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. This is Cancer Uncovered. Thank you for listening.